Hello out there. Welcome to episode 138 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris. We're part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Thanks so much for joining us. And this episode is going to be special for a whole number of reasons. The first one that I'll reveal right now is that we're recording on Zoom. Normally, I record on Skype. It's no big deal. You have it in your ear holes either way. I'm hoping that this is recording. We're going to have some fun here. I have on the other end of a Zoom connection, an author, a music producer, a reissue producer, historian, music analyzer, and musician, fellow drummer, Mr. Pat Thomas. Welcome to Love That Album, Pat. Hey, great to be here on a uh, sunny uh, Los Angeles afternoon and I guess a uh, Australian morning. It is a Melbourne morning here in late September and spring is just waiting to be sprung. But we're not here to discuss weather any further. We're here to discuss music. More specifically, we're here to discuss Van Morrison and his album, St. Dominic's Preview from 1972. And we'll get onto that in a few minutes as well. Some other Van-related news of the last few days. <laughs> it's inevitable. Before we get to that, I'd like the listeners to know a little bit about who you are. I've seen some posts in your Facebook feed about your work as a drummer, but you write a lot of amazing stuff about the history of music, about musicians that in some cases people have stopped writing about them, people who don't get enough attention. And you've gone and written a couple of books, which I haven't gotten around to reading, but one of them sounds, at least to me, absolutely amazing. Listen, Whitey, the sights and sounds of black power 1968 to 1975 and really the floor is yours i'd love to hear you talk about this book yeah okay i'm 56 years old uh i had a brother who was nine years older and so in the early 70s when most kids were playing with toys and i was too i'm not going to reinvent history but i also kind of were inspired by my brother so like you know the movie easy rider came out in 69 my brother brought a book into the house around 1971 called steal this book by abby hoffman so my brother was just caught up in the counterculture that was happening in the late 60s early 70s he was not a hardcore radical he wasn't protesting on the streets but this was an era as i like to say where the college dorm room would have an Angela Davis poster on one wall and maybe a Dylan poster on the other. This was an era when the Black Panthers were mingling with John Lennon. So even though I was like nine, 10 years old, and I didn't fully grasp the political elements of this, I just love this countercultural shit, for lack of a better word. And so by the time I was 18, I briefly, or 19, I briefly met Allen Ginsberg and interviewed him. Abby Hoffman, who was a radical, uh, basically, probably not that well known in Australia, but he, him and Jerry Rubin were protesting the Vietnam War throughout the 60s with outrageous antics and, and humor and things. By the time I was 18, 19, 20, I had, had met or seen these guys speak. Fast forward all the way up to roughly around 1999-2000. I had been living in San Francisco for many years and I moved to Oakland right across the bay. Not that far of a move, but culturally a very big move. San Francisco is, you know, a diverse community with whites and Asians and whatever, but Oakland is a very black, culturally very black community. And so I just started reading about the Black Panthers and the things they got up to in the 60s and 70s. And being the kind of guy that I am, I found myself then hanging out with some Black Panthers or former 
former Black Panthers, I should say, mostly a gentleman named David Hilliard, who'd been, you know, one of the top Panthers. You know, they had kind of a, a pecking order a political organization. So I began to realize that there was this wealth of sort of underground Black music inspired by the Panthers or other Black militant groups. Sometimes it was relatively mainstream, you know, various jazz artists and things. But anyway, I did a bunch of research and wound up putting together this book called Listen Whitey, The Sights and Sounds of Black Power that came out on Fanographics Books a few years ago. And it's it's not only a history of these recordings and a basic history of the Black Power movement, it's also very visual. I've got every album cover, every seven inch single. I've got some other cool ephemera, like strange advertisements and stuff of the era. And then separate from that, with the exact same title and the exact same cover art, Light in the Attic Records is the basically sort of a soundtrack to the book, also called Listen Whitey. The closest I've come to maybe some of the music you're describing were on some of the soul jazz compilations. There's one called Black Fire New Spirits, which I don't know whether it would be classified as radical music, but it was certainly like within the spirit of the time. Yeah, yeah. I don't have those albums in front of me, but there's probably several of those artists pop up in my book. The Last Poets, Watts Prophets, Archie Shep doing Attica Blues, Curtis Mayfield, If There's a Hell Below, We're All Gonna Go. But, you know, again, and I'm, I'm having a little bit of a brain fart, a bunch of artists that people have not heard. And again, I'm, I'm blanking on some names. But uh, anyway, it's a, it's a wealth of information and very timeless, which is both good and bad, if you follow my drift. <laughs> so, yeah, I do. When did the book come out? This is what, like a few years old now, isn't it? Listen, Whitey. Yeah, the book actually, it's a, it's a bit old. It came out in 2012. I did a big tour of the UK. I was on the BBC a few times. And about every three or four years, the books kind of gets rediscovered. I'm constantly doing little podcasts or little interviews about the book. It, it's kind of taking on a life of its own. As a follow-up to that book, I kind of flipped the racial coin and did a book about the white radicals of the 60s. Uh, specifically, we were Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, both yippies, both big anti-war protesters. But that book folded in. Phil Oaks, singer-songwriter, was a yippie and very political. Poet Allen Ginsberg, author Norman Mailer, although Norman Mailer obviously was not a hippie or a yippie. He politically was aligned with this stuff. They had kind of a passive-aggressive relationship with Dylan. Anyway, that book's called Did It? Jerry Rubin, an American Revolutionary. And that book's a little newer. It came out about two years ago. You know, my main bread and butter of paying the rent, as it were, as a reissue producer, I've done a lot of projects for Light in the Attic Records, Rocky Erickson, Michael Chapman, uh, Public Image Limited. Currently, I'm doing a bunch of work for Fire Records out of the UK uh, with some 80s bands, The Dream Syndicate and Steve Wynn. Yeah, there's a box set coming, which I produced for another label called Real Gone, but I'm doing a couple of dream singing boxes for Fire. Fire has a sub-label called Earth. And I recently, with my friend Jessica Hunley, we put together the first ever soundtrack for Dennis Hopper's 1971 weirdo film called The Last Movie. Yes, I only just saw that about a year or two ago. <laughs> yeah, and so that has Chris Christopherson on the soundtrack. It's a traditional old school soundtrack with a lot of talking and a lot of the sound effects from the movies. You know, nowadays you buy a soundtrack and it has nothing to do with the movie except the songs, right? There's no dialogue. We pulled everything right off of the film reels. Yeah, so I've, uh, and I've done a few other books I, I with a buddy called Mike Keith. We put together a collection of career-spanning interviews with Lou Reed, including Lou Reed's infamous 1975 Australian TV. 
I'm sure you know that one. Being yes, a- yes, I have seen that. So, you know, I, I'm basically just doing cool, weird shit. Well, I'll pause it there. What we'll do is we'll go to a quick break. Joanne will give the contact details and then let's get started. So we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 138 with Morris here in Melbourne and Pat over there in LA. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. And we're back. Morris here in Melbourne, Pat in LA, and we're here to talk about Van Morrison and more specifically his 1972 album, his sixth album in his own name, St. Dominic's Preview. But as we always like to do in this program, we'll probably spend quite a fair bit of time talking about the artist under question before we even get to the album under focus. So Pat, I really want to know what is your entry point with Van Morrison? The drinking age in New York State, which is where I was born around Rochester, Buffalo, New York. The drinking age in the early 80s was 18. In other parts of the country, it was 21. I quit high school at age 16 to go to college. So basically, I was 16 years old, but I was hanging out with a lot of 18 and 20-year-olds. So I was able to get what we call a fake ID and go to bars at 16 when other people in the bars were 18 and above. There was like a local singer-songwriter who would play this one local dive bar, and he would play Moondance at Caravan, I think. I knew the songs through him, but I didn't associate it with any you know particular artist. I'm not even sure I was aware of Brown Eyed Girl at that point, um, even though obviously it'd been a big hit years before. Anyway, after I graduated from college, it was a two-year school. So I graduated college. I was just 18 then. So I went out and bought a copy of Moondance and just loved it. The songs I didn't know, like, and it stoned me. Half a mile from the county fair and the rain came pouring down. Me and Billy standing there with a silver half a crown. Had the full of a fishing rod and the tackle on our backs. We just stood there getting wet with our backs against the fence. Into the mystic, uh, come running. And so for a while, it was the only Van Morrison album I had, probably for at least a, a year or two. And when I was 19, I did something a lot of American kids and probably Australians do. In fact, I met Australians. Something called the Eurorail Pass, right? So, you know, you're you're right out of college or right out of high school, you buy this pass. So I was cruising all over Europe and I had a Walkman and I only brought one cassette and that was Moondance. 
And what I found is I also, you know, I was staying in youth hostels, but you know, if I was gonna go, let's say from Italy to France, I would take an overnight train and being a cheap young bastard, I wouldn't buy a sleeping car. I would just sleep in my seat, right? Something I would never do now as a 56 year old. But nevertheless, even at age 19, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and you felt like you'd been mugged. And I was never a coffee drinker. I didn't do caffeine. So to wake up, if you will, to kind of rejuvenate myself, I would listen to the Moondance album on cassette. You know, that was like my morning jolt of coffee, right? So when I got back from Europe, I just started to slowly explore more of Van. You know, I picked up It's Too Late to Stop Now, you know, the Double Live album. The other thing I was, I realized I should probably blab to your audience. I'm very closely associated with something called the Paisley Underground. That was Uh a music scene in LA in the 80s. And although I didn't live in LA, I had a similar band called Absolute Grey. And so we played shows in New York State with the Long Riders and with the Rain Parade and with the three o'clock with the dream syndicate so those bands became friends of mine and in recent years i've done various reissues or compilations of some of those bands anyway steve Wynn and i in the 80s you know he suggested i go out and buy the tv sheets album another friend of mine turned me on to vegan fleece you know so i just kind of slowly started collecting these albums this is we're talking like 84 85 86 And then finally, in 86, Van put out No Guru, No Method, No Teacher. And that album, to me, is part of a trilogy, right? You've got Astral Weeks, which is this, you know, I mean, it's Astral Weeks, right? It's that magical, ethereal thing. And some morons will go, I love Astral Weeks, but Van never really did anything like that again. No, you moron. He did something called Veden Fleece, which is very similar to Astral Weeks in spirit. I'll just say to you, if you love Astral Weeks and you haven't spent any time with Veden Fleece, check it out. That's Astral Weeks Part 2. And I would argue that No Guru, No Method, No Teacher is Part 3. Now, does it sound like Astral Weeks? No, not exactly, but it it captures that X factor, right? It hits that musical G spot, if you will. And so No Guru, No Method, No Teacher came out. I happened to be, long story short, I was living in Copenhagen briefly for a year. Van came to Copenhagen. I saw him live for the first time. I was mesmerized. That just started the whole thing where I either was buying new van records as they came out like for example I love when it came out Hymns to the Silence Second fast Hold tight Just remember ordinary life More trouble than it's worth Know it when you see the sign Nothing feels right Step out of line then I go back and discover, oh, I need wavelength or I need into the music. The funny thing with Van is that sometimes the records, especially over the last 20 years, don't necessarily resonate with me at the time. In other words, when Avalon Sunset and Enlightenment came out, I was like, ah, these are okay. You know, they're kind of new agey, you know, very slick. Now I love them. An album called The Healing Game, which came out, I guess, in the late 90s. You know, the upside of kind of rediscovering these these albums of the last 20, 25 years is that it's almost like for me having a brand new Van album come out because all of a sudden I'm obsessed with this record from, you know, let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so I've come to the conclusion that there's not any of them that I think are complete, utter dreck. I'm not saying they're all genius, but my point is there's none where it's like, oh my God, Van went disco and it just didn't work. Or Van decided he would do an album with Taylor Swift and it just didn't work. You know, he's never pandered to a commercial thing. And this kind of leads up to 
you know, having written a couple of books, you know, as, as we've talked about, I decided to write a song by song, album by album look at Van Morrison. It's not a biography. It's really me just nerding out, starting with the Them albums and going all the way through the catalog, album by album at a time. I just wrote about Wavelength. You know, that's something that I'm really desperately looking forward to reading. There was a book that came out I don't know, maybe 25 years ago, 30 years ago, that was not published like in physical format. It was just on the net. The guy just wanted to put it out there. It was just something he had a passion for. I'm struggling to remember the name of the fellow, but the name of the book was The Great Valerio. And it was this guy's assessment, album by album, song by song, of what was to that point all of the work of Richard Thompson. I'm like the world's biggest Richard Thompson fan, and that I, that just passed me right by. Was that Australian-based? No, the prologue just started. Like He was a businessman, and he would go from airport to airport, business meeting to business business meeting. And the one thing that kept him sane on his travels, listening to his Richard Thompson tapes, and he'd break the ice in meetings and they'd say, well, um, so what is it that you're doing in your spare time? And he'd say, oh, well, I'm passionate about the music of Richard Thompson. And they'd go glassy eyed because they didn't know who he was talking about. Yeah, I'm an uber nerd. I mean, I have probably, you know, 50 hours of unreleased or bootleggy Richard. T- yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny how that one passed me by. Mm, mm. When you mentioned to me, I think, you know, one of our typed conversations, leading up to this that you were going to be doing such a book. I thought, now I need a book like that in my life. I really, really like that approach. I want to also stress, because there's been a few Dylan books like this and probably other artists. I'm not getting into kind of, I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic, you know, like it was April 2nd, 1973. It was raining. Van sure. wearing a blue shirt. As the book goes on, I'm starting to include some of the other musicians and being a little more detailed. That. But it's, it's really kind of about the feel, you know, how the music makes me feel my you know i mean it's very god it's hard to define it but i hope it's not too geek i mean on one hand i guess it's geeky it's very geeky on one level but on on factoids it's not so geeky that Mm. makes any no that that makes complete sense because you're taking the approach of here's not the history let's let the art stand for itself and here's how the art makes me feel and i do want to come to that in a few minutes because we have to inevitably talk about the events of the last week or so yeah and and kind of leading up to that i don't talk too much about Van's personality traits. I mean, every once in a while I'll slip in something about his moods and his temper. If you don't, if you don't like it, don't like it, go fuck yourself, okay? In other words, I'm not trying to interview all the musicians he's angered through the ears or anything like that. Obviously, be a tad of that. You can't avoid it, but it's it's not the gossipy thing. Uh, you know, like one story is a few years ago, he kept hiring and firing the same drummer. And each time he brought the drummer back, he would give the drummer a bit of a raise. And so the drummer was like, keep firing me, man. I <laughs> coming back at a higher salary. So I might slip in a couple of stories like that. But I heard a story through a pretty reliable source where, again, the story's like maybe 15, 20 20 years old doesn't really matter too much but someone came out as a new roadie or new crew member and they were told you know by the boss not van but by someone else like whatever you do you know don't talk to van don't engage him and supposedly they had a day off somewhere maybe in england and the guy spotted van in a pub and hey van can i buy you a drink i'm like your road crew van said sure what's your name and then later van had this guy fired you know this type of shit i mean i used to think these stories were kind of cute they're a little less cute to me now but anyway I'm not filling the book up with tons of those. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, ultimately for me, 
Van's music is giving me such a, you know, I'm not a religious person, but, you know, giving me kind of a spiritual, emotional uplifting at times. Which is probably what he sets out to do because so much of his music is spiritually invested and there is the, the walking contradiction in him. I've used it to stave off depression. I've, I've compared notes with other friends and fans. They have a similar thing. And so, you know, the fact that he's an asshole, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, for example, I'm not a big Beach Boys fan. I mean, I like the Beach Boys at most of their albums, but, you know, people love to complain about Mike Love, right? Mm -hmm. I always say, did you date Mike Love? Have you made love to Mike Love? You know, <laughs> did you, up here, you know? Did did you he, Mike Love? Yeah. Did you have steady, you know, have sex with your mom? Were you his drummer and he treated you bad? In other words, you know, you hate Mike Love from a distance. Now, I'm not defending Mike Love's assholey moves, but like, who cares? I love the Beach Boys. I don't really give a shit if Mike Love is an asshole. Right, know? right, right. And, and the other thing I'll say, just kind of related to that topic, since I'm a music nerd, as amazing and wonderful of a musician as Brian Wilson is, if you were in the studio with Brian Wilson as much as Mike Love has been, and, and Brian says something like, can we make the sound a little more orange? That's not that charming of the 50th time he said it. Brian Wilson's the obvious genius, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, geniuses are charming from a distance. When you're listening to the final work of art, the final recording, that doesn't come into mind while you're sitting. Yeah, so I'm just, I'm just saying, and I know some listeners that actually disagree. So yeah, Mike Love is a big jerk, but if he's treated Brian Wilson badly through the years, it's probably because Brian drove him absolutely zonky. I'm just going to divert for a second before we come back to what the story's been with Van over the last few days, because I think it is pertinent to what we were just talking about. Just my own introduction, like everyone else who probably heard Gloria and Here Comes the Night and Moon Dances, individual songs on the radio, and I never saw of paid it much heed but whatever it was maybe 1982 1983 the moment where my ears perked up was over the closing credits of the martin scorsese film the king of comedy mm. how can you stand the silence that pervades when we all cry how can you watch the violence that erupts before your eyes how can you tell us something Just to keep us hanging on Something that just don't mean nothing When we see it, you are gone I bought that soundtrack album ostensibly for Come Rain or Come Shine at the beginning of the film, as done by Ray Charles. But then there's this song over the closing credits, Wonderful Remark. And I was thinking, wow, what is this? This is absolutely fantastic. And then a few years later, the album The Philosopher's Stone, which was a collection of Van Morrison rejects, which other artists could only hope to have in their main collection. Such yep. an incredible collection of rejects. It's such a fantastic collection of songs. But wonderful remark, it's scarily pertinent today. It's a finger-pointing song, and yet there's something that's almost musically wistful about it. It seems like Van has got maybe, I'd count as three, four types of songs in his collection. It's either <laughs> great love songs, songs about spirituality, and songs about people who piss him off, mainly the recording industry. And I haven't gotten to his latest album, 
three chords and the truth. And I believe that that's angry van, but musically, maybe you'd never know it. Shortly after, I think, seeing The King of Comedy, mm-hmm. I went out and bought an album that was new at the time. And that was Inarticulate Speech of the Heart. And I know that that album has had in recent years, it's had its detractors because it sounded very 80s. It was very prominent with the synthesizers. But I remember watching a late night TV show that was big here at the time called Night Moves. And they had a little video clip for a tune off the album called Celtic Swing. Mm. I just found this really utterly charming. It was unlike anything that was coming out at the time from artists who were releasing albums and singles into the top 40. But the tune that really converted me into a fan was the closing tune on the album, September Night. I don't know if you saw or remember the Bill Forsyth film that came out maybe a couple of years after that, Local Hero. Oh, right. It had a Mark Knopfler soundtrack. Right, right, right. Uh, directed by Bill Forsyth. And there's a moment where the main character is looking up at the sky and he sees the Aurora Borealis. All of a sudden, I thought this tune, September Night, would be a perfect soundtrack for that part of the film. And the, some of the music that Knopfler does compose for the film makes me think that he was listening to this Van Morrison album and to that tune in specific. I've got no evidence for it. Well, given, given the Knopfler and Van later collaborated, I would say you're probably right. I have no doubt that Knopfler was a Van Morrison fan. I mean, that much would make sense. And you've gone and affirmed it there. I didn't even know that they'd worked together. But that really is what drew me in. And from that, I went back to Moondance and Astral Weeks and Veed and Fleece and into the music. And I sort of went away for a bit. And I'm not a completist. I think maybe the last inverted commas, new album that I bought. And the one that sort of brought him back to mainstream top 40 attention, at least in this country, was Too Long in Exile. Oh yeah, right, sure. Um, Because once he'd gone and recorded Gloria with John Lee Hooker. We sort of got to find out about their friendship and Van was recording on John Lee Hooker's albums and John Lee Hooker was recording on Van's albums. It was about that time that I was sort of like really taking a big interest into those early Warner Brothers albums. Before we sort of go into the stages of his career, did he develop? Did he go through different sounding phases or was he always catering to the same muse across his career? We should 
talk about for a couple of moments what you were talking about before, which was, does it really matter if he is an asshole? And there you're going to write a book about where he is musically. So for those of you who haven't sort of been paying attention to what's been happening in the news, like in the last few days since we've been recording this, Van Morrison has announced that he's going to be releasing three songs over the next month or so, so like over late September into October, his protest against the COVID-19 lockdown. He's going for the conspiracy theory. He's saying it's all complete bullshit and I don't want to be locked down. And here are some of the lyrics to the songs that I'm going to be releasing over the next few weeks. Now, to most of us who have been taking this very seriously, we're just sort of rolling our eyes and thinking, oh, Van, there you go. What are you doing again? But you go to the social media and people are saying, who's Van Morrison? I'm proud to say I don't know who he is. I really, I read someone who said that. And there are some people who are saying, well, I'm not going to be paying any more attention to Van. He's a complete and utter asshole. I'm not paying any more attention to him. And I'm thinking we're talking about the same man who's been infamous for being, maybe apart from Lou Reed, the rudest man in all of contemporary music. And the man who's probably most famous bootleg is called, if you don't like it, go fuck yourself. So we're not talking about the milk of human kindness in his personal life. If you'd only been listening to the music, you would think, well, he is the milk of human kindness because he writes about love in a way that no one else does. So I want to ask you, Pat, obviously, well, you've already gone and said it effectively, but I'd like you to elaborate on should we or can we be separating the art from the artist? Well, I'm like most clear thinking humans. I am wearing my mask and bummed out and, you know, whatever. So so I'm in no way defending Van's point of view or agreeing with it. I haven't had anybody close to me die of COVID, so I'm, I'm able to maybe be a little more lighthearted towards Van, perhaps, than other people would be. It's embarrassing on many levels. I'm embarrassed as a fan and future author of Van. I'll, you know, I'll just say a few things. I mean, first of all, I only know one person who really knows Van. And as that person pointed out to me recently, they said, look, Van has been touring since he was 15. Although he gripes about live performances, he's been, in recent years especially, kind of touring nonstop. You know, Van is always kind of playing somewhere you know, every couple of weeks or months uh, over the last, let's say, five or 10 years. So he's he's kind of going a little stir crazy. Now, does that give him license to talk like a whack job? No, but I'm, I'm just trying to explain for people that are completely fucking pissed off at him of, of partially where he's coming from. I think the comments that have annoyed me the most on social media are the classic Monday morning quarterbacks of... Yes of, well, you know, he hasn't made a great album in 30 years, or I, I always thought he sucked. It's like, no, you, you didn't really have an opinion on Van one way or the other musically. You're just now decided retroactively that you've always hated him. Most of his true fans are kind of doing what I think you and I are doing, which is we're separating the man music, right? But if you're like, I'm never going to play his albums again, well, they probably didn't mean that much to you to begin with, right? And if you think he hasn't made a good album since 1977, chances are you haven't even listened. I'd, I'd rather somebody just go, guy's an asshole. And just leave it at that. Leave out your, as I posted somewhere on the internet, I said, Van's comments are ignorant and your comments about his music that you've never heard or barely heard are equally ignorant. So ignorance begats ignorance is my point of view. Now, I'm sure some of your listeners are going, man, this Pat Thomas guy, he sounds like kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you know what? I don't I don't really care. If if you like Van, great. Keep listening. If you don't like Van or you you were on the fence, well this gives you a reason to, you know, go out and and buy another, you know, talking heads reissue or something. I, so the question is is there a line in the sand? I'll ask you because it's it's a personal thing. Is there a line in the sand where someone could do something where you think fuck it, I'm done with you? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, another guy that I love who's was a legendary asshole is a uh, guitarist singer-songwriter John Martin. This tune was composed by Spencer As valiant a man as ever left home He had been much reduced which caused great I don't know if you're familiar with him. You know, he's yes, kind of, yes. You know, Martin, you know, was horrible. I have every John Martin now. You know, when I did my book about Jay Rubin, Abby Hoffman, and the Yippies, my political book, I mentioned John and Yoko were very tight with those guys. You know, when John got militant and started writing songs like Power to the People and uh, Sometime New York City, he was heavily under the influence of Abby Hoffman and Jay Rubin. So, you know, I interviewed people who more or less witnessed John Lennon hitting Yoko on I left that shit out of the book for a number of reasons, but, you know, hey, if I want to play some Beatles or, or John Lennon, I'm going to listen to it, right? Now, you know, what would cause me to cross the line? I mean, you know, I don't know. If, if Van started wearing a swastika, maybe. And let me say this. I'm, I'm more likely to just stop listening because, the you know, the music started to suck. You know, like I love the first five or six Rod Stewart albums, but yep. I certainly didn't buy the last five or six. I, I mean, I'll say this. You know, as a reissue producer, I've had, I've had Tom Verlaine be a little bit of an asshole to me. I, I still listen to Tom Verlaine and enjoy it. You know, is it just is a little disappointing when Tom Verlaine's on the phone? He's being a little difficult. Sure, sure it is. But you know, Verlaine's never been known for being a charming guy mm. either. You know, he's just not super famous, so the stories don't get circulated. But you know, uh, I wouldn't want to be in a band with Tom Verlaine. Right, uh, right, right. Once again, it comes down to that line in the sand. I think people are prepared to accept behavior that doesn't happen to them personally. So if you hear that Tom Verlaine was rude to someone working in a supermarket, well, you know, that's not my issue. But as soon as they go and say something that affects their sensibility, your uh, outlook on life doesn't agree on my outlook on life. And look, I mean, I have my own lines in the sand. There are some artists who I think, no, I can't listen to that person because their outlook dictates their art as I see it. And people who know me in real life and maybe have read some of my posts know who I'm talking about. Let's come back to Van because that's ostensibly what this is supposed to be. Van being an artist who has been recording albums for the same length of time as people like John Cale, who we spoke about on the podcast only last month, and Bob Dylan, mm -hmm. who you've mentioned, and well, okay, well, Lou Reed's no longer with us, but he'd been recording pretty much all the way through to the end. When yeah. you think about people like that and then Neil Young, you can definitely say, all right, well, yeah, Neil had this period and he had his acoustic period and then he evolved or he went to something different. And we mentioned Richard Thompson earlier, yeah. Ron, and you can tell songwriting-wise or performance-wise a Richard Thompson album from, say, you know, Henry the Human Fly era doesn't sound mm -hmm. anything like Rumor and Sigh. Right. Well, yeah. He changed, he evolved over that period. But I'm wondering, in some ways you can say this, same thing about Van Morrison where he changed a bit, but it all almost seems to me like I'm going to do this thing now. So I'm going to come up with an album full of 
tightly crafted pop songs, songs that are composed, or I'm going to do a, an album with songs where it's less about the composition, but it may be more about, right, I'm going to come to the studio and say, right, I'm going to do these two chords over and over, and I'm going to scat over it, and you just play what you want over it. I mean, I was actually sort of reading up about maybe a year or two ago about the bass player, Richard Davis, who plays mm. on Astral Weeks. I was reading up because I was talking about an album that he did with Olvin Jones and sort of made the connection. Oh, wow, this is a guy who's on Astral Weeks. And he'd said that he came to the studio and said to, he, he was like the musical director and said to Van, well, what would you like done with these songs? He said, I don't know. I'm hiring you to be the musical director. You take, do with it what you want. There's no album like Astral Weeks. And yet, as you've already gone and indicated, there are some albums that he did later on that were in that flavor. And yet I sort of see the album that we're going to come to, supposed to be the focus of this show, St. Dominic's Preview, of being some of the compositional style of Tupelo Honey and Moondance. And yet it has some of the more drawn out jamming style. Let's see where this takes it. There's some of the ethereal style, the new agey style that he maybe became a little bit more known for later. Did he evolve this somewhat of a style that we know him for at some stages of his career? But even though Moondance is a very different album to Hint to the Silence, mm -hmm. both albums sound like Van Morrison albums, a rather elongated way of saying that. But where do you stand on transitions and, and of evolution? I think Van's been mixing and matching these things you're talking about almost from the beginning. But if we just kind of go through chronologically, you know, them is, is very much kind of a raw R&B garage band thing. But there's some things sneaking in, Mystic eyes which is garage band but the lyrics he's, he's already starting to get to that word mystic and there's a couple of ballads on the them material that i'm forgetting which ones you know then we go into this the first solo stuff which again is kind of r&b but you know there's brown eyed girl which has a little bit of a calypso latin flavor you're starting to get into those tv sheets which musically is again just kind of a groove but lyrically starting to stretch out you know then the next thing is astral weeks wow Okay. Then he kind of switches from the ethereal, acoustic y, Baroque, classical sometimes sound of Astral Weeks to this kind of RB, soulful pop of Moon Dance. Band and Street Choir gets a little more streamlined, too bloody. But then you, you get to St. Dominic's Preview, and there's three songs, you know, two or 10 minutes, one at almost seven, where he's the stream of consciousness thinks. As it moves along with period transition, he, with Dr. Jenny kind of throws back to the RB. But then two albums later into the music, he's, he's starting to get that sort of, I wouldn't quite call it new agey, but that kind of smooth something that he by the time he gets to like avalon sunset he's perfected beautiful vision which comes in between those is a great kind of mixture of smooth something with uh, you know songwriting and, and it's interesting you're talking about the arrangements because you, you know you look i don't know how well you know the album beautiful vision but it's very well constructed beyond the place where time is through Beyond the place where time is Beyond the place where time is still Night is dead 
cleaning windows, the song Beautiful Vision, Celtic Ray, Fellow Stairway. And, I, and as I listen to it, and I can say this for almost every band out, but I'll just say that one. You're like, man, the drummer did exactly the right thing. The trumpet player did exactly the right thing. The guitar player did exactly like, in other words, it's almost like Van is inside of all of these guys, right? And I think it's a blend of just guessing they're connecting with Van musically. Van often has an arranger, a band leader in there. I'm not sure on that album. Actually, Knopfler's on that album, if I'm not mistaken. You know, for years, you had this guy, Pee Wee Ellis, who had been in uh-huh. uh, Brown Band. You know, so, so, you know, Van knows how to get the best out of his musicians. And I'll say this as a musician. For the last 20 years, I've, I've been a drummer band leader of something called Mushroom. And Mushroom is pure, both live and in the studio, pure improvisation. I very rarely give instructions. We just play. And I've had, you know, musicians from other bands sit in, uh, DJ Bonebreak of X. Wow. David Immergluck of the Counting Crows, uh, Ralph Carney, who was Tom Waits' saxophone player for years. In other words, I feel like I bring out some of the best in some of these musicians because I, I just... I just let them do whatever the fuck they want. Well, obviously, I'm not. We're not really doing songs. We're doing more of a jazz thing. Maybe one of the reasons Van's albums are so great is he's trusting people. He's leaving them alone. Which we always hear was Bob Dylan's modus operandi. Yeah, right, right, exactly. But I think Van is also a guy who really knows what he wants. So I'm, I'm kind of a bit contradicting myself. But you know, <laughs> I think I think Van goes in sometimes and just plays. You know, having listened now to you know every Van album very intently, there's times where in the studio I go, they're jam- I mean, and he's, and he's making the song, improvising lyrics or digging into his lyric book or whatever. And I think that St. Dominic's preview, because I know we've been now talking for an hour, we're just getting <laughs> I still want to raise maybe one or two more points before we get to the album proper, but yes, go for it. I'll just say, you know, something like Listen to the Lion, which is an 11-minute sort of acoustic improvisation on St. Dominic's preview, you know, is, is probably a blend of what we're talking about. You know, that's obviously a song. He, you know, he had a song idea. It's not just a jam. He's obviously letting people flow you don't get 11 minutes there by barking it out every second of the way anyway so yeah you mentioned you have some other tangents or something just still sort of keeping on this notion of the sound of what makes a van album and how we differentiate between those early warner brothers albums and the ones that came later on i mean obviously technology is going to have something to do with it and recording techniques uh, so obviously an articulate speech of the heart that i brought up before is going to sound very different to what happened in the early 70s because studios evolved and the like but how much do you think a producer like ted templeman had to do with the sound of those early albums well if you notice in hindsight van is self-produced almost every record since about 1978 right so ted recently said that you know he learned a lot from van now don't get me wrong you know van wasn't born a magical producer i mean bert burns shaped the them stuff van didn't come out of the womb a producer but you know he i know he butted heads with templeman i think the templeman was an enabler in other words you need you think you need more of this let me help you get it or you're not sure yeah they obviously had a bit of a chemistry i mean damn you know there's a couple of ted templeman van morrison albums that are brilliant van is also you know he's obviously obstinate and a bit of a hothead so i think there was a lot of yin yang there i mean templeman once famously said i'll never work with van again he said that publicly van got pissed at him then he said well van I'll, I'll, I'll pay you to let me you know so it's probably like you walk out of the studio with van you're like god i don't want to talk to him for at least a year <laughs> But then you want more. There's something about those early albums that sound to me like, well, I mean, his terminology is Caledonian soul. 
And you know, that live album, It's Too Late to Stop Now, is to me one of the greatest live albums ever. I said, treat to discover that there were these volumes two, three, and four that had been released in uh, recent years. But that original double album is one of the greatest live albums ever. And it's a lot to do, I think, as much with the sound. Once you get to something like Into the Music, which I think is a terrific album, but that sounds a bit more, I don't know, a bit more polished, a bit more slick, if you will, than those early Ted Templeman albums. I'm still trying to work out, I mean, songwriting-wise, it still sounds like, yep, an extension of the same composer who wrote the songs off Tupelo Honey. But it's your production, so that's why I'm still trying to work out whether it comes down to technology or whether it comes down to having uh, someone who's a bit more objective than Van himself. Here's what's missing in this conversation in terms of the, the stew. It's not just the producer. You know, we're talking about it. Uh, it's totally the stop now. What a blend of rock... R&B, soul, jazz, traditional folk, like the song uh, Purple Heather, Wild Mountain Time, right? You know, classical strings. He's got, the, he pinched those musicians from the Oakland Symphony Orchestra. Like, you know, his van loves to say, I'm not a rock musician. <laughs> and he says that for a few reasons. One is, he, you know, on a pop culture way, he doesn't want to be considered a rock star. But but he's, he's music, he's right. I can't think of anyone else who's quite blended all those genres so successfully and effortlessly He's really, it's so much cross-pollinization, and it really all comes together on that double live album. And I think that's what makes it sound fresh. It's rehearsed, well-rehearsed, but there's definitely improvisation going on. And Van is also a great improviser vocally. You know, I can tell, you know, when he, he does what's called scat singing at times, or he finds a word like, and I'm thinking, 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 and I'm thinking which is a little bit of a blues thing, but he's sort of like testifying, uh, you know, kind of like a Southern American, Southern preacher, what I call call and response. And sometimes he's calling and responsing with himself. You know, it was recently his 75th birthday and a big magazine out of Ireland called, I think it's called Hot Press, dedicated a whole magazine, you know, a whole issue just to Van. I don't normally see the magazine in America. I had mail order, but, you know, he, you know, they're obviously they're calling him Ireland's greatest musical export. And yeah, I mean, who can touch this guy? I mean, Bob Dylan, who generally only respects people who came before him, like old bluesmen or Woody Guthrie, Dylan's a huge fan. You know, it takes a lot to get Bob excited, right? Like, who the, who the, why, you know, if you're Dylan, you know, like, why do you need to listen to some other schmo? Like, many of the great musicians do. He has what I call an X factor. If we could nail it down and bottle it up. <laughs> because we have gone and established our feelings about Van as songwriter, Van as human being, right. Van as arranger, how he approaches. So, what we'll do is we'll go take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about the album St. Dominic's Preview, which is presumably the reason, dear listeners, that you downloaded this in the first place unless you're a long-time listener in which case you know that we like to wrap it on for half the show about other peripheral things we'll take a quick break we'll be back in just a moment when I saw you coming 
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. And we're back from break. Morris over here, Pat over there. We're here to talk about St. Dominic's Preview by Van Morrison, released in 1972, July 1972, on the Warner Brothers label. Like a lot of albums in his back catalogue, there are themes that Van keeps returning to. And this album I see as its overall arc as being biographical in a way, but also very strongly about love. And if I were to sort of say, right, this album, if you could split it up into two parts, the opening half of side one is maybe his love song to Janet Planet. I don't think they were divorced yet. No, they weren't. They were, they were, this was the, the good years. Right. And then thereafter, from the second half of side one through to the rest of the album, it's biographical. But if you were to consider it musically, you could also say, right, well, if, if I were to rearrange it where the two lengthy songs that we were talking about before, so Listen to the Lion and Almost Independence Day were to be put on one side, everything else to be put on the other side, then it could be almost compared to Bob Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home with the band side and the acoustic side. But that's not where he's going with this because he doesn't want to make it anything as blindingly obvious as that. There is what we're speaking about before the tightly crafted composed songs, which tend to be the love songs on the first half of side one and a little bit more of a flow on the rest of the album. So the first time you heard St. Dominic's preview, where did it stand in 
comparison to what you already knew and loved. Now, you already gone and said that, you know, you played Moondance every day off your cassette while traveling around Europe. So that was already burned into your brain. But as you expanded, where did St. Dominic's Preview actually sort of sit for you? Well, I can't remember like the exact where when, but it kind of came into my life, you know, once I was already revving up into van. So, you know, I, I would say sometime in the late 80s, right? I start to get into it. And it quickly became and probably remains in some ways my personal favorite in many ways. In the last year, maybe Veden Fleece, you know, I mean, it's hard to pick just one, right? But, you know, St. Dominic's is, I'll just say this, in, in the last 20 years, I've probably played it more than Moondance. And Moondance also suffers, as I've said in my book, you know, from a little bit of uh, over-familiarity for many of us. Van has a few peaks. This is one of the peaks, right? You've got, Jackie Wilson said, I call it a pop song, although it's, it's just it's just the most radio-friendly. It's not poppy, but it's catchy, right? And, it's, and it serves the same purpose as Domino does or Wild Night, which is like, let's, you know, let's start off with something the radio can play. I, I'm going to skip over Gypsy for a moment. And I Will Be There is kind of an old, kind of like, I call it a standard, like Frank Sinatra could have sang I Will Be There. Right, right, right. Gypsies, I don't know if I, I could define it genre-wise. To me, Gypsy, and I'll, I'll come more to this, but Gypsy sort of has these two feels, you know, you get your waltz time and your 4-4 time. When it gets to the 4-4 time, it almost sounds klezmer-like. I forgot, I forgot about the time signature differences. Right, yeah. So to me, then you've got Listen to the Lion. The only thing he'd ever recorded is Listen to the Lion. If it was he, he was a one-song artist, we'd still have to do a two-hour radio special on him. <laughs> you know, Listen to the Lion to me, it, it's, it's not just a love song. He's talking about everything from his British Isle roots to life in America, American West Coast. It's just such a friggin' epic, you know? And it's not just the fact it's 11 minutes. He's growling, you know, the lion inside of me. A little bit primal scream therapy, a little like my all-time favorite John Lennon album, Plastic Ono Band. Not sonically, but rough comparison. Then the next song, St. Dominic's Preview for me, the title song, I'm so obsessed with that I had to take a year-long break from writing about that. In other words, I, I, I wrote about the whole album last August, but that song was so important to me and I didn't want to screw it up that I took a year-long break before I was ready to tackle it. I did something I don't normally do. Normally, I write 10 pages roughly about the entire album. I think I did four or five pages just on that album. I mean, on that song. Because St. Dominic's preview for me 
is it blends so much. It, it's a travel long. It's a long way to Buffalo. It's a long way to Belfast City, too. It talks about San Francisco, where I lived for 25 years. And he says, you know, everyone's determined not to feel each other's pain, right? That to me is the human condition. We are selfish assholes at heart. But then he switches over to the music business. You know, everyone is paid, a record company's paid for the wine. And he talks about hanging out with the jet set. And then he decides, no, I'm not into the jet set. I mean, that song encompasses so much stuff. It's like taking Pete Townsend's Quadrophenia rock opera and condensing it down to one song. Well, that's the overture, essentially. Yeah, okay. Then you've got Redwood Tree, which for a long time I thought was a little bit of a throwaway, and it's a little lightweight. It's kind of a melancholy, nostalgic thing. Redwoods are, of course, in Marin County, where Van was living at the time, and this boy, you know, loses the dog. I mean, it's 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 a little bit of a tearjerker, okay? Then, almost Independence Day, like, if, if he couldn't possibly do Listen to the Line in part two, he does it. And it's equally as genius, right? Like, how the hell did he fucking pull that off? They're both songs very connected to the San Francisco Bay in Marin County. I love the open line. I can hear them calling from Oregon. Well, it's been said that one of the members of them was calling him from Oregon uh, just to touch base after several years. He's talking about the fireworks in and around the San Francisco Bay. He's talking about him and Janet Planet walking through the streets of San Francisco's Chinatown. I mean, listen to the line, and you mentioned this, you can take Listen to the line almost Independence Day and just make it side two of the album. You know, and they're very acoustic based. Yeah, almost Independence Day has some very groundbreaking Moog synthesizer work. And there weren't too many people in 72 that were tastefully and very subtly integrating the synthesizer into their work. I mean, there were people that were doing very synthesized based music, right? Obviously. But, but you know, who the hell is blended in an acoustic guitar and a Moog and, yeah, Leroy Vinegar, an upright band? Okay, and made it sound like it was always meant to be. Way up and down the line. It almost sounds for the time, it is a link to the past, but it also sounds a little bit futuristic. And it's that synthesizer, that early synthesizer that gives it that slight futuristic feel. Or maybe, I don't know, it's a little menacing, but maybe that's to do with the uncertainty of the future. Yeah, yeah. I want to come back because you've gone and given a really good overall arc of the album. I wanted to sort of highlight a few things and get your thoughts. As you say, the album does open up with what is the most radio-friendly hit, but I also sort of going to look at this. This is not an album that when you first put the needle down or first put your disc in the CD player, that you hear that first song that you could never imagine, if you're listening to it for the first time, how this is going to end. You listen to those earlier albums, where it ends, you can sort of say, yep, okay, that's a logical progression. But this, it goes to somewhere that you just completely don't expect. This album, to me, is an album of celebration. And Jackie Wilson said is just one of the greatest love songs, one of the greatest celebratory songs that I know.
everything in its place. The arrangement is absolutely fantastic. I love that the, you know, the famous riff is played four times with a new instrument being added every time. So we get Van doing it vocal-wise, just clapping his hands, and then we go onto a horn instrument, then to another horn instrument, then to the bass before the whole band finally comes in. And when he gets to that line, I'm in heaven when you smile. Oh, which I love. What a great line. There's, there's two great lyrical moments. And I know that a lot of people say, I'm not a lyric person. But when he sings, I'm in heaven when you smile. Mm-hmm. And when he sings, when you walk across the room, you make my heart go with the floor tom being hit on those heartbeats. It sounds like such an obvious arrangement, but it's so absolutely perfect in that context. This is what I call the calling card. It's not just there at the start of the album because it's the most radio-friendly song and even if it had been released as a single, we okay, we're easing the listener into the album with a song that you know. To me, it's also about saying, I want you to start off this album with a smile on your face. I want you to know what I feel on the inside. doesn't matter that I'm going to piss you off if you meet me in a pub and I'm going to tell you to just go fuck off. But in my heart, this is what I'm really feeling. Right. And I want you to share that. So that's the calling card for the album, no matter where else it goes. The other two love songs on side one, you know, Gypsy and I Will Be There, they do have different flavors, but I see that song as musically different, but they're part of a trilogy and not by no coincidence that to me that the three of them are there together. And I, I, I love your comparison. You're saying I Will Be There sort of works as maybe an old timey Frank Sinatra song. The, the song that actually came to my mind is the old sort of blues number, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. Whenever the sunshine comes through Whenever my thoughts turn to you Whatever you want me to do I will be there it's something very bluesy, yet maybe cabaret. They're well composed, but they're all great love songs. He's dedicated to Janet Planet at that point. Speaking for myself, those songs, especially Gypsy, I Will Be There, and Redwood Tree, in my mind until recently got dwarfed by the big three long ones. In other words, it's, it's kind of like, you know, one of my all-time favorite albums is Who's Next? So we always remember Bob O'Reilly, and we always remember Won't Get Fooled Again, maybe Behind Blue Eyes. And then we forget, like, oh my God, it's got The Song Is Over and Bargain. You know, so like for years, you know, I would listen to this album and in the CD age, I might even just put my big three, listen to The Lion, St. Dominic's, and almost in, in rotation, right? So it was kind of like only when I started writing about the album where I'm like, oh yeah, Redford Tree, that, that's not a, as much of a throwaway as I thought. But Jackie Wilson, I've always loved. That was always in my brain, you know, but I will be there, Gypsy, you know, so, so it's sort of like this album is so great that the greatest song are dwarfing the really good ones. You make a who's next comparison. I would argue Redwood Tree is this album's Love Ain't For Keeping. It's not, (laughs) Love Ain't For Keeping isn't the song that you first think of when you think about who's next, but when you're playing the album as a continual work. And that's what Van 
and the who would have wanted you to do anyway. Don't go picking individual songs. There's no filler on either album. But when you get to that song, you realize it is one continual work of art, but each with its own chapter, if you will. But they all slot in together well. Superficially, you think Jackie Wilson said and almost Independence Day are from two separate albums. And yet, because they're both, as is every song in this album, to my way of thinking, is something celebratory. I mean, Redwood Tree is taking something sad and then celebrating, well, let's go see where we go with the future. You know, boy, and he has grown. Boy and his dog When I'm looking for the rainbow You know what did they learn Since that very day Walking by the it's wistfulness, it's hopefulness. This whole album, it's celebratory. I mean, even the darker moments of St. Dominic's preview where he's talking about the record industry, but it's also about hope for the people of Belfast, you know, half a world away. To me, it's all celebratory, even the darker song. Yeah, and, th- and this was also an era when, you know, I think Van is at the top of his game as a lyricist. You know, in more recent years, he's probably a little more of a lazier lyricist and become more of a vocal stylist. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that he's a vocal stylist because, I mean, frequently one of the most common expressions of praise that we always hear about Van Morrison is people say, oh, I could listen to that guy sing the phone book. I've used that dumb cliche myself. (laughs) Just imagine if he actually did. In a way, when you're hearing songs like Almost Independence Day and listen to the line where he is taking an expression and we sailed and we sailed and we sailed and we sailed. Oh, my love. It's less about the lyric there, and it is more about the emotive response that he puts into it. You're talking about he's at the top of his game, and certainly those songs that are not the 11-minute songs where he is telling a story are as lyrically great as anything in the pop canon. But in those two longer songs, it's more like, well, I'm going to use my voice. Yeah, I'm telling you a story here, but it's not about the story here. It is what I'm doing with my voice and in Listen to the Line. Where I, mean, I, I can't remember who it was, but it was, uh, I don't know if it was Ted Templeman or one of the members of the band who told the story that it was him, surprisingly, his lack of confidence. But he's saying, listen to what I have inside of me. I have a lion inside me that's trying to roar. And you sort of think, well, this guy's lack of confidence. I'm not just necessarily talking about because of the perception of his rudeness to the general public. But you sort of figure this guy who just keeps on touring, keeps on recording albums, doing it his way. You don't perceive this as a lack of confidence. And maybe he sort of came into his own. And maybe this was the point where he just sort of said, right, I've got this line inside of me and I'm going to let it out autobiographical once again I sort of see those two songs the other thing those longer songs also as prayer like 
Black songs. As he went on in his career, he would sing explicitly about God or appreciating the the beauty that is high above the world. But these songs are still very prayer-like. And St. Dominic's preview is an all but the lyric, a gospel song. Right. He is invoking his spirituality. Once again, I don't know enough about his early upbringing. I mean, growing up in Ireland, but do you know, was he religious growing up? No, his dad was raised a Protestant, but had become an atheist or agnostic. So the dad never went to church. The mom, when Van was young, like a teen or preteen, dabbled for a few years with Jehovah's Witnesses. But they were unique because they were basically neither Protestant nor Catholic. Although culturally, I would say they were on the Protestant side, but they were kind of like not going to church, didn't have a strong religious thing. So so I think that Van growing up, you know, was a little bit inspired by his mom. He did go with her to Jehovah's Witness, but, but, but he kind of became... A little like some of the beats where he's blending, you know, by beats, I mean, like Kerouac, he's blending traditional Christianity with some Eastern stuff and maybe a little touch of paganism. You know, in other words, Van's obsession with the British Isles going way back, Caledonia. There's a little bit of New Age mysticism, you know, I mean, Van's blending so many things. He dabbles, and I and I hesitate to bring this up because it's almost as bad as bringing up COVID. You know, he dabbled briefly <laughs> with uh, Scientology. And of course, his detractors like to really, but you know, Van is too cynical to have gone too deep. He did thank Ron L. Hubbard, or L. Ron Hubbard, or whatever the hell his name is, on uh, Articulous Switches Are, but that was just a, a thing. And I think, you know, having read, you know, a lot about Van, Van has been on a constant search definitely since the 80s. He's, he's read some people say he's read probably two or 3,000 books on spiritualism and mysticism. And it's probably lucky for us that he hasn't found whatever it is he's looking for because he's channeling it in so many great songs. Like, in other words, a content van might get writer's block. So, th- th- so this is the beginnings of some of this. The, the religious side or the spiritual side isn't fully formed yet, but it's getting there. You know, to me, uh, you know, listen, the line is, is you know, I, I'm using, I might not be using this word correctly, but, you know, he's, I mentioned paganism, but I just really mean like the Celtic roots, you know, and maybe paganistic isn't the right word. I might be misusing that word badly. You know, I remember like, you know, looking up Caledonia, you know, on Wiki, like, what does that really mean? I think it refers to like Scotland before Scotland. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'd read, yeah. So the drummer on a lot of the stuff, Gary Malabar, I got an interview with him and he said, he said, you know, Van had a weird childhood. He he never really fully talked about it, but he's kind of channeling. He's sitting in Marin County in 1972, but he's maybe thinking about something that he saw or experienced in Ireland in, you know, 1952 or something. You know, there's some, I don't know if it's hurt, you know, I don't know if he was, picked on in school or his dad yelled at him or, you know, I mean, I don't know, but you know, Redwood tree is a little bit of a reflection of that. I think he's looking back to Ireland, but placing geographically the story in Marin County, which is just outside of he's complex, you know, same with Dylan, you know, right. To a point Van's storytelling, you can, you get a greater sense of what he's aiming for, or at least we think we get a greater sense of what he's aiming for than certainly some of Dylan's periods of songwriting. I would guess Van is very cagey when you try to talk about lyrics, and sometimes he'll tell you, you know, get the fuck out of the room. (laughs) And I think think it's a blend, and I think that Dylan is a little bit this way too. These songs, there's some concrete things that they were thinking about, but I think some of the best songwriters 
the music's just, or the song is just kind of coming through them. In other words, if they knew too much about it, it, it would screw it up. I wanted to also bring up something else that he wouldn't have seen the worst of it, but I'm wondering if the troubles in Ireland, and I know he'd left Ireland before the troubles involved into fully blown conflict, but surely he would have grown up in Belfast seeing a lot yeah. of what was, what was going on. There's a biography that was done about 10 years ago by a guy named Johnny Rogan. And Johnny folded in a lot about the Troubles. And when I read it 10 years ago, I didn't know that much about the Troubles. And I was a little cynical. And I kept going, you know, why does he keep bringing this up? I recently read a brand new book that was a bestseller in America about the Troubles. And I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember what the hell it was called. But now that I've come up to speed about the Troubles... I'm a left winger and I'm an anti-authoritarian. So if you'd asked me before I read the book about the troubles, I would have said, well, you know, IRA good, British army bad. Now I would say both sides are a little fucked up. Now, I understand why the IRA started doing what they're doing, but I would say that, and, and a couple of them have said this in their own memoirs, you know, they kind of switch from political killings to just, just do some killing. The Batter Meinhof gang out of Germany, same thing. Started off with a political, then they just became fucking killing assholes, you know? Which is pretty much what Marianne Faithful is targeting in the song Broken English. You know, and so Van, yeah, he didn't experience too much of that firsthand. It's interesting in hindsight to see that he, he never really spoke out about it one way or the other. He's been on the record for years as saying, I'm not political. And that may well be so. And this album is as close as he gets to it, where he's looking from you know, San Francisco, from half a world away. Shall cleaning all the windows? Singing songs about it at PSO. And I hear blue strains of no regret on Cross the street from Cathedral North Down he told the story about how he had a dream about living across the road from the St. Dominic's Church and had a dream that there was a service praying for peace in Belfast. And then a couple of weeks later, there was a service praying for peace in Belfast. So I'll say this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an analogy to something I read once about Hendrix. Some friend of Jimmy said, you know, years after he said, he said, you know, Hendrix wasn't hung up about being black. Hendrix was just into being Hendrix, right? And I would kind of say the same thing about Van, maybe a little bit on the politics. In other words, he's not hung up about, he, he's definitely not Catholic. He's sort of Protestant, but not really. He's not really hung up on that. He's kind of hung up on just being an Irish mystic. You know? he's, he's very into Ireland as a thing, as a culture, as a beaten fleece. I mean, he wrote most of the songs in Ireland. So, you know, I don't think he's bullshitting us when he said, you know, I didn't pick a side. Which is amazing when you think about the time, because like, going back to Astral Weeks, I mean, he was already in the States, but he's surrounded with stories from home. He's surrounded with what's going on in America with protests against the Vietnam War. And all manner of musicians are writing protest songs, or even if they're taking a stance about writing love songs, it's as it's we're going to take the opposite side to what our parents' generation is about. And Vance doing none of that. Right, but on Hard Nose the Highway album, this is 
a song, I think it's The Great Deception. He's putting down John Lennon for singing Power to the People. He's putting down Sly Stone. In other words, he didn't like strident music. I even think there might be even a little dig towards CSNY for their part, you know what I mean? So he, I think he's conservative politically, as, as we just found out. But I think he was always a little cynical towards radicals. At least based on that on that song and Ardo's Island, where he's attacking all the popular musicians of the day that are strident politicians. You know, and, and you know, Dylan, people have tried to pin him down. He wrote a lot of pro-black songs, but the Black Panthers, friends of mine, met him and said they couldn't engage him in a political conversation, <laughs> even though he wrote Hurricane, he wrote George Jackson. You know, these guys, as somebody once said about another musician, it doesn't matter who, it wasn't a famous person, a buddy of mine said, that guy's neither left-wing nor right-wing, he's no-wing. And I would say for sake of argument, you know, except for this recent thing of Vans, he's, I think he's been no-wing for a long time. Coming back to the song St. Dominic's preview, he is being apolitical, but he is observing personal truths rather than wider truths. You know, so no one's making any commitments to anybody but themselves. So that's he's speaking about a selfishness that it doesn't matter which side of the political divide you are, everyone's looking to themselves. Dude, you, you're teaching me something here. Oh. Because even though I knew about the Belfast thing, you know, I've always, again, you know, there's a, there's a famous phrase, it's we don't see how things as they are, we see them as we are, okay? And so I've always interpreted some of those lyrics about, well, how does it fit Pat Thomas's life, right? <laughs> so to me, that's about the personal human condition, which it can be, but you're absolutely right, dude. It's, it's kind of about like Protestants versus Catholics, and I just want all my Belfast buddies to be safe or whatever, right? You're making me think here, and I appreciate that. Woohoo! Love that album, bringing thoughts to the listenership and the guests. You know, I'm not gonna be so I know everything, but you know, usually <laughs> in an interview, the interviewer isn't teaching me something, so I, I gotta thank you and, and appreciate it. We've spoken about political side or rather apolitical side, the spiritual side being, you know, his musical approach with this being very gospel. And we've already gone and touched a bit on those longer songs. One other thing that sort of, that struck me years ago and it hadn't occurred to me again until I started listening again for the show is that almost Independence Day, I'm figuring that Roger Waters and David Gilmore are big fans of this album. And I say this, you know, I'm not criticizing. They took that opening chord progression to almost Independence Day and they turned it into Wish You Were Here. Absolutely, positively. And, and you, know, good, you know, good on them. Did Van turn to them and say, good on you or? <laughs> no, he, he you, wouldn't. You fucking bastards. At the time, I didn't think he was referring, you know, he, he wrote a song called Copycats Ripped Off My Songs. Right, right. And he's generally referring to Springsteen, Bob Seger, Graham Parker, referring to everyone who kind of took his basic shtick and worked off of it. What would be interesting is if he is or was aware, like, you know, I mean, I, I, I only figured that out about a year ago myself. 
But you know, Van Van is would not be gracious. He'd probably be like, "Oh, you sons of bitches." He's, he's not going to be that gracious about that kind of thing. But I don't know if he's ever been asked or if he's even thought about. You know what I mean? Like, who the hell knows? But I do know that he's had a love hate with the Springsteens and Bob Seegers of the world for years. <laughs> but, you know, like I was just listening to. I'm kind of starting to explore great Van Soundalike songs, and I've decided that one of the greatest. And I don't know if this song is known too much in Australia. It was huge here in the '70s. It's called Night Moves by Bob Seger. Yeah, yeah, Bob Seger's a known entity, of course. Of course. Okay, so you know, Night Moves, I've realized, is the world's greatest musical tribute to Van. He's Vanning this. It's oh my god, you know, it's 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 like I'm obsessed with that song now. You know, so I think he's kind of referring to that stuff. Springsteen, you know, has admitted that he took the band and Street Choir album around the time he was working on Asbury Park and, uh, you know, uh, Wild Innocent Eastern Shuffle and used it as a template, you know. Mm. Only talking about this now, it never occurred to me about the connection bet musically between Springsteen and Van Morrison, but I'd say probably those first two albums, Asbury Park and The Wild, The Innocent, and The Street Shuffle, are very Van-like albums. Maybe born to run onwards maybe not as much maybe a little bit but those first two albums are very van yeah no but i mean to be fair to bruce i mean bruce is his own dude but he you know he's like everyone else you know you got to start from somewhere those first two albums are you know and obviously dylan is a big influence on springsteen as well but but yeah those first two those are his van-esque and like i said i found a somewhat i'm not sure the vintage of the interview but you know he said yeah he goes we we took van and street choir and just listened to it non-stop and so we got to do this Van, of course you know he was he was siphoning off further as he went on into his career into some traditional Gaelic sounds as well. I mean, there's that great album that he did with the Chieftains where who's he to be saying who, where the, the, the people are ripping him off? People like to yell at Led Zeppelin. And my, my thing is for, for every song they ripped off from an old black guy, which is not cool. They came up with so many amazing riffs of the of the realm, which later much lesser bands ripped off from them. It's part of the rock pop music. I can hear them echoing. I can hear. I can hear them Weeks is an obvious album that, you know, Mojo or on Kettle every, you know, every six months is going to tell you you need to own. Moon Dance is obviously probably one of his very best-selling, best-known albums. Obviously, if you're already a Van fan, you probably know St. Thomas but I, but I, th I think there's a lot of people on the planet that probably own maybe two to four Van albums, and this is not one of them. And so I would really say run, don't walk to wherever it takes to get this thing and listen to it. You know, I mean, I think it's really, it's it would be on a list of almost any of his best albums, but, it, but it's, it's, it's not on a list outside of Van's own fan base, if that makes any sense. I acknowledge that what you're saying is probably correct, but that sort of surprises me because the cover has always been there. I've always seen it, like in the record shop. I think it was pretty common at the time. In other words, if we were doing this podcast in like 1975, I would negate it, what I just said, right? <laughs> 1979. But I just think in the last, let's say 30 years, I think this album has dropped off of, you know, again, I just use Mojo as a reference, like, you know, best 100 rock 
records of all time. You're going to see Astro Weeks and you might see, you know what I mean? I, th- I just I just feel that it, it needs to be put not back into Van's own catalog, but it just needs to be put into the classic rock canon. It's something that humans should have. I think one thing that a lot of Van Morrison listeners or the people who maybe have, say, like the greatest hits anthology and maybe Moondance, one thing that they miss by not having this album is a different side of his songwriting. I mean, yes, you could sort of say that Listen to the Lion and almost Independence Day could mood-wise fit on something like Astral Weeks, and yet I'm not sure that they do. They are their own beast, and one side that you get from Van that you, you get on a song like Listen to the Lion and maybe also get, I can't remember, there's um, like a 15-minute song on Common One as well. Oh, uh, yeah, this is one of the Van's greatest songs of all time. It's Summertime in England. I'm not sure if it's Summertime in it because there's a couple of 15-minute songs on that album as well. The thing that I think he shows in Listen to the Light, like for an 11-minute song, it's not one that I'm ever thinking, would you hurry up already? I, it's one that I'd probably come back and play again. But it has a great sense of dynamic, and people who listen to this show know I love referring when a song works well with dynamic. This build and release of tension as we go through each verse of the song he's building as, as he's singing you know listen to the line listen, and he's getting louder and louder and the, it never gets loud to an explosive extent but it does reach to a point and then he pulls back again as if he's trying to build up that confidence please listen to me please listen to what i have inside of me it's a little bit sexual yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's a good thought i hadn't thought about that for those who are either pleasuring themselves or each other <laughs> back in the orgasm that's what that song feels like right yeah like, don't come too quickly. So he's he's trying to hold off. And we sailed and we sailed and we sailed and we sailed. <laughs> I never thought that we were going to that point, Pat, in this discussion. But anyway, so the point I'm trying to make here is that if you only know Moondance or if you only know the bright side of the road, then you're missing out on this other side of him, which he really knew how to build tension or he really knew how to convey that to his great band. Build the tension, pull back. Uh, and that's not an easy thing to do. And all the more amazing for a song that uh, really only has four chords in it and in two lots of two chords. Not to, because we're, we're, we're going off on tangent. You know, to me, Summertime in England is like that. It's 15 minutes. It's like revs up, pulls back, revs up, pulls back. Mm, mm. <laughs> you know, go, go just between you and me, like listen to that in the next day or two and then send me an email. Yeah. Okay, I will do. I'll, I'll confess, I only started listening to Common One in prep for this. As I said, I've never been a van completist. So I thought, well, I bet to get through a few more albums just to get fill in some of the gaps so you know i listen to no guru no method no teacher I listened to Wavelength, which, sorry, is not for me. You know what? I just wrote about Wavelength, and I decided that it's kind of a turkey. Yeah. yeah all right. Okay. Well, there you go. We're in a great... It's, it's a little bit twee. All right. So, look, once again, I think we've pretty much taken this conversation. Yeah, we, we have. We've politics, sex, mysticism, religion. All the great talking points that my mother said never talk about in, in polite public. And now I'm putting it out for people to listen to. Pat, I just wanted to say thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure to uh have invited you onto the show and have this van discussion as i think i typed to you in a, a type conversation that we had it's amazing to me that i've gone nine years doing this show and never thought to discuss a van album wow I, I, it's cool on the first that makes uh, yeah, absolutely a shout out to listener mike marquez um I'm, i hope i'm pronouncing that right who i know through you know a couple of film discussion and music discussion groups and he sent me a message saying you've got to 
to check this guy Pat out. He knows his music, writes really well. Huge Van Morrison fan. See what you think. So, um, oh god, I love it. I, if it's a guy I'm thinking of, I think he lives in Rochester, New York, which is he does. Yes, I, we've never met face to face, but he he, you know, that's one of my. I have about three hometowns, and that's one of them. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So that's you said you're originally cool. from there, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So huge thanks to Mike for putting me on to you. And so for people out there, they should definitely be sort of following your writings under your own Facebook name. But but you've also got a Facebook page completely dedicated to Van called Listen to the Lion. I do. I do. Uh, and I, you know, that's a great place if you want to do Van. If you just want to hear me talk about everything under the sun, come to my own personal page. I'll put links up in uh, the show notes for this. So when do you think your Van book, just purely about the music, none about any of the other shit, you're dissecting his music. When do you think that will see the light of day? Depending on my speed, it's it's a good eight. It's about a roughly good 18 months away. 2022. The last thing I'll say is I'm thinking about, I've never self-published, but I may self-publish because I want to be selfish and just like not have a word changed. And then I might, you know, try to get it published and then submit to an editor and, and tighten it up. But I kind of would love like the first 500 copies to be, you know, just let it roll, baby. <laughs> Did you find that that was a problem on your previous books that there was editorial interference? Yes and no. It's uh, my best-selling book, Listen White Black Power book. Uh, the publisher was great and I, you know, pretty much just, they worked with me. The Jerry Rubin book, it's make a very long story short. They tried to cut it in half they did a disastrous job. It was unreadable. And then I slowly but surely brought it back up to about four-fifths of its length. <laughs> With the Van book, it's not so much just about the length. Like, I mean, I'll just say this. Van does not allow you to use his lyrics liberally in a book. Mm-hmm. So a real publisher, we'd have to clear lyrics. Otherwise, Van would shut the book down. Self-publishing, you know, I could I could print 500 copies and, you know, he's not going to hear about it. You could always, so like, quote him back to himself. You could say, Van, if you don't like it, Go fuck yourself. Yeah, and the truth of it is, I'm not even really quoting that many lyrics to begin with. I mean, I'm, you know, but I just, my point is, is I, I just would love to have sort of the pure, unedited director's cut before it gets submitted to anybody else. Yeah, no, a, a fair point, which is, I guess, what every great writer wants to do. So. All right, my man. So thank you very much, Pat. It's been absolutely sensational having this conversation with you. My respect goes to the good people at Pantheon Podcast Network that they've allowed me to blab on and put their show out on their feed and there's like about 40 or 50 other shows in the Pantheon Podcast Network all taking very different approaches to music discussion. So huge thanks to you, Pat, for joining us. And please out there, everyone, be safe. Look after each other. Go out and vote if you're living in America. I don't get political on this show, but go out and vote. And we'll uh, speak to you next month. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Look at the band.